section and this section, what we're about to get into in the latter half of Mark chapter 5, fit together. There are, there are four examples, four events and things that are set up to display the authority and power of Jesus. Now, I had a question that I wanted to ask you. What do you do when you have no hope? Not, not the Sunday school answer, oh, I pray about it, but what do you really do? For some of us, we, we actually do, as soon as we recognize that we have no hope, we go to Christ. That, that is what we ought to do. I'm not denying that. For some of us, we have other reactions. Fear, sorrow, chaos. I mean, there, there's all kinds of responses that we can have. I want you to think about what do you do? And then, obviously, the next question is, what should you do? That's where the, the Sunday school answer is the right answer. We should go to Jesus. We're going to see two individuals today who had no hope. They had nowhere else to turn, and they knew it. And so what do they do? They go to Christ. This section is going to continue to display Jesus' authority, but it's... it's two different ones than what we've looked at so far. This one is over a chronic disease, a medical issue that has lasted for 12 years, over a decade. And the other is going to be over death itself. Does Jesus have the authority and the power to handle these? We're going to find out. It does use a literary technique. Uh, we've, we've noticed how Mark is a, an amazing writer. Um, he writes with some enthusiasm and, and drama and really draws into the accounts that he's giving. And this is another example of that. He's going to start off one story, and then he's going to put a different story in the middle, and then finish out the story. Now, these events did take place one after another. It's, that's the way that the flow goes. But he could very easily tell one story and then tell another story. That's what he does a lot of times. But in this, he's going to insert one in the middle because the two fit together so well. And one of them actually helps to heighten the, um, the way in which we read and learn about and listen to the other one. And so... We're going to read through this section here in just a moment. This, this flow of events is going to be uh, very interesting to find out what's going on and how he's displaying it. But as we, as we get ready to read, I want to ask you, when, when you hear the word faith, what comes to mind? Trust? Trust? Okay. Okay, my, my kids have, have heard some of my, I like, I like um, visu visual representations of concepts. It makes it a little bit easier for me to remember. So some of you have probably heard the example of the chair, right? What, what is faith? To, to put faith in practice, I'm going to go ahead and do it just because I can. <clears throat> this is a chair. Right? We, we can agree that this is a chair. I trust that this chair will support me. I think that it will hold me up and, and that I won't have any issue. Do you guys believe me? You, you think that I actually do? Whether I do or not, you have no evidence because I haven't sat in it yet. I haven't actually trusted this chair. See, we, we use this term of faith as something that I believe or that I think. 
And yet the reality is that until it's put into practice, it's relied on, it's kind of just this mental concept. But when I actually put my faith into action, that's what James is talking about with that show me your faith by your works idea. Well, that's where I actually sit down and rely on the chair. So <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to be looking at this idea of faith. Scripturally, it's de- defined in Hebrews chapter 11 as faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance being the foundation or the solidness, the firmness of something, of what we are hoping for. We, I, I hope that this chair will support me. My faith will validate that, that it is firm and it is solid. The evidence, the, the confidence, the proof, the verification of things unseen. There are things that we don't see and we don't fully understand or comprehend, and yet faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The rest of Hebrews chapter 11 is going to show ways in which people put their faith into action. By faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. Over and over and over again in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that's why it's called the Hall of Faith, over and over again you're going to see individuals who put their faith into practice. Just in the book of Mark, we've seen faith come up a couple of times. Back in chapter 2, there was a paralytic man who was lowered through a roof. You remember that account? Um, And what did Jesus say? It, it says, seeing his faith, he, he takes action. And what is the action that he takes? He says, your sins are forgiven. See, even in that, Jesus wasn't focused on the physical issue. It was the heart issue. And so, seeing their faith, he addressed the sin issue. And then healed the paralytic man. In uh, chapter 4, verse 40, uh, what we saw very recently is that Jesus even chides or gets after his disciples for their lack of faith. Why don't you have any faith? When the storm is raging and all of this chaos is going on, they thought they were going to die. And yet he says, why do you have no faith? Faith is going to play a very significant role in this section that we're about to read. It's going to come up as well in future passages And so I want you to to consider what is faith, because that plays a huge role in this. Also, as I read through, I want you to notice there are two main characters. We're going to see a a man, Jarius, and a woman who's unnamed. And I want you to notice that there's a lot of similarities between them, but there's also a lot of disparities, a lot of differences between them. So I'm going to read through, um, and I want you to to pay attention to, both of them are going to deal with life-altering issues. These aren't minor, small inconveniences that they're dealing with. These are huge, major problems. Problems that no one physically is capable of dealing with. Uh, Both of them are really going to be addressing some ceremonial uncleanness. Some Old Testament law things are, are going to come into play. And if we, if we pay attention and look for those, we're going to see that, that both of them have major issues with that. Both of them have been dealing with this for 12 years. 12 years is a, a significant aspect in this section. But then we're also going to see that one is a social elite and the other is a social outcast. One is probably fairly wealthy, or at least well enough to do, middle class at a minimum, and the other is 
destitute, has nothing. And yet both of them are going to come to the only one who can fix their situation. And both of them are looking for a healing touch. We're going to read Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. So if you've got your copy of the scriptures, follow along as I read. Starting off in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet, and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. And he went off with him. And a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse, after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the multitude pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came up from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make such a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, putting them all out. He took the child's father and mother and his own companions, and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Telethia cum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was twelve years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. The very first verse is going to set the stage for what's happening. And, and Mark does a great job all throughout of, of letting us know, okay, what's going on? What's the setting? What's happening? You'll recall that they had traveled across the sea and had the, the storms and the waves and then had arrived in that land and were immediately met by this demon-possessed man, the man possessed with a legion of demons. And Jesus had dealt with that. And then... As soon as they had arrived, they turned around and headed back, basically. And so they have now returned back to the other side where they had started from. And 
As soon as he gets out of the boat, a great multitude gathers around them. Now, we're not necessarily sure how big this crowd is, but it seems that he wasn't even able to leave the seashore because of the press of the crowd. And verse 22 says that there is one person in particular that's the focus of this section. His name's Jarius, or it's one of those names that could be pronounced a couple of different ways, and so my apologies if I mispronounce it, but Jarius is is how I'm going to say it. Um, It looks as though he was waiting there. Not that he heard that Jesus arrived and then he comes, but that as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, a great multitude gathers around and he stayed by the seashore. He wasn't able even to leave the the dock area and right away this guy is there. One of the synagogue officials. Now, what is a synagogue official? Did anybody look that up or understand what, what that position is? Possibly. We're not told what sect he belonged to, whether Pharisee or Sadducee, whether he was a scribe or anything of that nature. He is an administrator of the synagogues. The synagogue in their time frame was kind of like a church. It was where they would gather to study God's word, to hear it read and talked about. Did you? What you got? with decency and in order. That, that was his job, yes. He was the individual that would uh, oversee the services. Now, their services were a little bit different than ours, but he's the one that would make sure that there was a reader who, would, who was able to read, who could then expound on what the, the text had said and what scripture was teaching them. Um, there are various examples of times in which Jesus goes into a synagogue and they ask him to read, or Paul goes into a synagogue. Brothers, do you have anything to add or anything to say? That's who this is. He's the administrator who takes care of all of those details and makes sure that it happens. This is a fairly significant position. He's not a lowly nobody. Now, like I said, we don't necessarily know what sect he belonged to, whether Pharisee or Sadducee or anything like that, but most likely he was one of those of some kind, Um, and he was a religious leader. Now, over and over and over again, you, you should remember in Mark, we have seen these religious leaders rejecting Jesus, ignoring Jesus, wanting nothing to do with Jesus, even to the point that they had decided they wanted to kill him. And yet, here we see one of them who has heard about Jesus, and he comes. It says, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly. He he comes up. This, This is a man who is, like I said, socially elite. He bows to no one. He's in charge of things. And yet, he arrives, and he hits his knees, and he begs. That, that has got to be a level of humility that this guy probably didn't normally express. Now, we don't know exactly when he decided that Jesus was worth going to. Maybe he initially rejected and then decided later. Or maybe he, as soon as hearing about Jesus, he began to question and figured out and, and was one who believed. We don't know. We're not told that. But we do know that as soon as things got personal, he went to Jesus. And he goes with a a fairly serious issue. You remember what that that issue is? What what is his request? 
to heal his daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. We don't know what the disease was or what the issue was, but she is about to die. In fact, we're going to find out she does. But he comes. There's an urgency to his request. There's a, a desire in this. And as soon as he sees Jesus, though, he falls at his feet and begs him, begs him that he would come and lay his hands on her. Those are the, that's his two requests, that he would come, that he would go to his house and lay hands on his daughter. So what is, uh, and, and then he has confidence. He, he has an expectation that if you would come and lay your hand on her, she will get well and live. He believes that, that Jesus has the power, has the authority, has the ability to do this. And so he, he asks, he requests this, he begs for this. Now, last week we saw that the legion, as soon as the legion arrived, it fell down, hit its knees, and bowed before Jesus. That's the same kind of an idea that's going on here. That same idea of falling before him. Now, the legion was in complete defeat. There was no way that it could fight against. It had no power or authority against Jesus. Here, there's that same level of, of submission, of recognition of who he is, that, that desire to, to worship him, to bow before him, and to, to recognize that he is in charge. It's very, very similar. And there's also an urgency to his request. You know, as I, as I read through scripture, I often think of myself in that situation. I've got three daughters, and I don't want to give any of them up. So if something bad were happening to them, what would I do? How would I respond to that? Well, he comes with an urgency and begs, knowing that the result, if Jesus is willing to, that the result will be her healing. So what does Jesus do? In verse, verse 24, what, what do we see happening? Jesus goes with him, right? Okay, this is great. This is wonderful. Jesus is on the way. Of course, the crowds follow. Now, there's a word that's used for pressing in. The crowds are crowding him. We've actually seen this happen before. This is a regular occurrence in the Gospel of Mark. And so, just, just picture it for a moment. Jairus, the synagogue official, the leader, has come up and fallen down and begged Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And they're going. And then there's this crowd that's just pressing in and getting in the way and causing hindrance. And, and they can't get through. My mind automatically jumps to a, a more modern reference. If you've seen The Princess Bride, there's a giant named Fezzik. And there's this huge crowd, and someone's trying to get through. And he's like, everybody move! And the crowd just parts and gets out of the way. Now, obviously, Jarius has no idea of movies or anything else. But I can imagine that he was wishing someone would just get all of these people out of the way so we can get home so Jesus can heal my daughter. And yet... That's not what happens. Instead, we see something else that delays. This, this, the words for this crowd is not just that there's a big multitude, but that they are crushing, that they're pressing in. There's, there's very little movement. It's hard to get around. And that's where Mark then switches stories and tells us about something else. I mean, it, it happens in the same context. It's part of this same thing. But Mark lets us know you know, Jarius, he's, he's ready to go. Jesus is going. They, they're on their way, and yet they can't because of this crowd. 
this crowd is, is showing us multiple things. First of all, his popularity. This is a key feature throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's showing us what's slowing Jesus down. Imagine, like I said, how Jairus would be feeling. But it also sets the stage for what's about to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I don't like crowds. I don't like crowds that are packed in like that. Maybe you like going to concerts or to, to sporting events or things of that nature where the crowds are just huge. I see several people shaking their head. No, me neither. Now, there's an individual that's about to come up, and we need to understand a few things about this lady. She has had an issue of blood, um, a hemorrhage, depending on which version you, you read, for 12 years. Now, we don't know exactly what that was. It seems to be something associated, we'll call it lady problems. It seems to be something associated with that, and we don't know exactly. But if you recall your Old Testament law, in the book of Hebrews, chapter, or sorry, not Hebrews, in Leviticus, chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15, there's a, an extended period that talks about this idea of if a woman has an issue of blood that lasts beyond when it should, 12 years is definitely beyond when it should, then she is ceremonially unclean. So this woman should not be in a big crowd. That's not allowed for someone who's ceremonially unclean. She should not be going to a rabbi, a leader, she should definitely not be touching him. Because if she's ceremonially unclean and she touches a rabbi, the rabbi is now ceremonially unclean. This is, this is an issue. This is a problem. This unnamed woman, who for 12 years has suffered, not, not only this physical issue, but she's gone to all the doctors, to all the experts. Now, if you've ever had a chronic disease and you've gone to the doctors, and they have no answer. How does that make you feel? What, what, do you, what do you do? Well, you try and find somebody. So she went everywhere. And she tried everything. And, and even in, when this account is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that there's, uh, sorry, Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that no one was able to help her. There was no answer. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, she was at a loss. She was destitute because she had used all of her resources. She had no hope whatsoever. Except for Jesus. She comes up in the crowd, a crowd where she shouldn't have been, and goes to touch Jesus' cloak. Now, for, for those of you who like Greek and, and the way that these words are set up, this is a very long sentence describing her. It's, it's actually one verb with uh, seven different participles describing who she is and what's going on. So it's, it's a run-on sentence that Mark puts together, which is unusual for him. And the, the reason I, I mention that and that I pull that out is the fact that Mark is letting us know how dire her situation is, how special this event is, how significant bringing her up and talking about her is. This isn't just a normal type of an issue. This is a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, had been enduring much at the hands of many physicians, had been spending everything that she had, had not been helped at all, but was continuing to grow worse. But hearing about Jesus... And coming up in the crowd behind her, she touched him. 
That's, that's the key verb in that sentence, is she touched him. Now, I mentioned already, she shouldn't be in the crowd. She shouldn't be touching a man. That just culturally, women don't touch men. That's not, not okay. I'll say spiritually, unclean individuals are not allowed to touch rabbis, teachers, leaders in the, the spiritual realm. She is breaking all of the rules. So we get this idea that she has, has snuck up and laid hold on and grasped his cloak. And what happens? Immediately. As soon as she touched him. Because verse 28 says, if she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. She had faith. She was trusting that that would occur. And immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Two, two things happen. The, the flow is dried up. So we, we have an instant response that's obvious. But she also feels it and is aware within herself immediately. Can you imagine the sigh of relief that she would have had? She knew she had been healed. Whew. Now, she's still got issues. She's still got problems. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And yet, she has been healed. We aren't told specifically about any level of pain. But the moment that she touched Jesus, she felt relief in whatever way that was. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. There is no hope for her. She's, she's desperate. She's looking for anything. Going into a crowd, breaking custom and, and ceremonial law. Yeah, she's def desperate is definitely the word for that. And now she gets relief. And we get the impression that she then tries to sneak away. Like, no, don't let this become a, a thing. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus, perceiving that power had gone forth, he turns around and asks, who touched my garment? So somehow Jesus knew. It, it doesn't say that he necessarily knew exactly who and exactly what, but he knew that something had happened, that power had happened. And so he turns around and he says, hey, who touched me? Now, put yourself in this situation. Think about that. Like his disciples, what, what's their response? Well, of course you've been touched. The crowd is pressing in. What, what do you expect? I mean, that, that's their response. It's, it's reasonable. It makes sense. His disciples, that's verse 31. You see the multitude pressing in on you, and you say you touched me? What, what kind of question is that? Jesus ignores them. He doesn't respond to them. He does, I mean, he just, verse 32, he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came. That's where I, I think that she had kind of started to sneak away because she had to come back. And what does she do? Falls down before him. If, if you hadn't picked up on this theme, that's throughout this whole section in the, the first thing that we looked at last week and in this section as well, this idea of falling down before him. She comes back, falls down before him. And, and we're told how she does that, with fear and trembling. She knew what she had done, and that it was not socially acceptable, that it was not legally proper, culturally right. But she came, she fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. Now, just imagine for a moment, what would that be like? 
Jesus had every right to be upset with her, to yell at her, to get after her, to condemn her. And if he has the authority or the ability to take away the disease, he could have put it right back on her. He could have. But what is his response? This woman had been caught in the act of grabbing a man and being unclean and touching a rabbi. But Jesus looks around, finds her. She confesses. She tells the whole truth. She doesn't try and hide it. Jesus could have been upset, but instead his response blows me away. I'll try and get through this because as I was pondering this again last night, I, I was in tears considering this sight. He says, daughter. That, that's a loving term. He who had every right to be angry and mad and, and condemn her lovingly refers to as a daughter. It says, daughter, verse 34, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. Now there's a lot going on just in that phrase. What, what all is Jesus talking about there? Obviously he says your faith has made you well. Uh, not the touch. It's not the fact that she reached out and touched him. But it's the faith. And Jesus points that out. So it's not that Jesus had magical clothes or anything like that. It's the faith that she had that made her well. But he says go in peace. What is peace? Just in general, what is, what is peace? I, I heard a couple, but I didn't. Serenity, Serenity? okay. Serenity. Serenity. Yeah, calm It was another one I heard. Any others? Untroubled. Untroubled. Tranquility. Uh, it also conveys the idea of prosperity. Now, this phrase, go in peace, it, it is a regular um, phrase that would be used as goodbye. But it's more than that. It's not just goodbye so long. There's also a blessing contained in this of go out with, with peace and tranquility, be at rest, be at, um, you know, have prosperity. All of that is contained in that. So not only is Jesus dismissing her and, and allowing her to leave, but he's also has restored her to health and prosperity and is making that known, that, that you are well, you can be at peace. You don't have to worry. Even though I could yell at you right now, don't worry. You're fine. Be prosperous, even. She who was destituted, destitute and rejected is now told to be at peace. Yes, sir? This is true. This is true. We, we do recognize and understand that, that true peace, true prosperity, true tranquility only comes from Christ. And that's what he's giving her. He's saying, go in peace. What else does he say? He says, go in peace and be healed. Okay, what is, what is healed? Mm -hmm. yeah. We're, we're going to get to that one as well here in just a moment. But what, what is this idea of healing? I mean, we, we use it all the time. What is it to be healed? To be made well, right? 
to be restored in, to health, to be made whole. There's, there's an uh, Old Testament, a Hebrew-type concept of shalom that's involved in all of this. It's a wholeness, it's a peace, it's a wellness, it's prosperity, it's all of those things brought together. And that's really what Jesus is giving her. It says she had been afflicted for 12 years, not only physically with this disease, but socially she'd been an outcast. Financially she had spent everything. And Jesus is saying, be well, be restored, be healed from all of this. But we have to go back and notice something. We have to recognize that although there is physical and social restoration that's going on, what's the first thing that he said here? He said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, in English, it's not great in there, but we start looking at the way that that's expressed. Another way that this could be translated is your conviction of the truth, that's what faith is, has saved you. The word used there is sozo, and it means salvation. That's what we use when we're talking about being saved. Now, it, it is a word that has a broad definition that includes wellness, wholeness, but ultimately, salvation is part of that as well. Just as Linda was saying, this is an idea that Jesus not only deals with his, her physical issues, but it also carries a spiritual impact. For, for us today, how are people saved? Like, spiritually, how do people get saved? By faith. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by putting our faith and our trust in the power of Christ. How was this woman healed? By putting her faith and trust in the power of Christ. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Now, there is a lot of challenges and issues with this idea of faith healing. And, and we see stuff in society around us that takes this way out of context. So I, I want to make clear that's not what we're talking about. This is the power of Jesus, not the power of some fancy preacher or highfalutin individual or anything like that. This is Jesus himself who's able to do this, who's able to interact with all of this that is happening. And so he is the one who has healed her through her faith. It is the power of Christ. Now, we do have to examine a little bit of the context. What, what started all of this? What started this whole episode that we've been looking at? Jesus arrives on the boat, and who shows up? Jairus, right? And, and he, he has asked, come to my house and touch my daughter so that she can be made well. And then all of this has happened. Now, I expect that this man has been worried about his little daughter this whole time. And Jesus has pointed out to this woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Now, as we read through that, we can pause and examine this interaction and think about, okay, Jarius has a daughter who is not well, and, and he has come begging for Jesus to take care of this. And instead of going to his house, Jesus has stopped to interact with the crowd and says, daughter, but, but what about my daughter? Well, I don't think that Jarius even notices that or pays attention to that because someone else comes up as Jesus is speaking, as Jesus is talking to this woman, 
Someone else comes up, verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came up from the house of the synagogue official. Now, have you ever had to deliver bad news? Do you come up happy and skipping and, and go? No, I bet. I, I don't know. We weren't there. We didn't see it. But I bet that this guy comes dejected, sad, having to bring the news that his daughter has died. And he comes up and he tells the synagogue official, your daughter has died. Why trouble the master anymore? Why trouble the teacher anymore? Think about what's going on here. Jesus has just healed this lady who had no hope, who had no options, who had spent everything. Uh, like I said, in Luke chapter 8, 43, the other uh, rendering of this event, it says she could not be healed by anyone. And yet, now, we see that Jairus' daughter is dead. No one can come back from that. There's no hope. There's no way. I, I, I think that it's easy to read through a section and not pause to consider and look at this. Jairus' daughter is at the point of death. And his only hope is to come to Jesus because surely Jesus can heal sicknesses. He's done that before. He's the answer. He'll take care of this. But instead of making his way all the way, the crowd has surrounded and pressed in and slowed everything down. And then this, this unclean woman has come up and grabbed his, his cloak. And now he's interacted with her. Jarius, I, I'm perhaps hypothesizing, but Jarius is looking at this like, hurry up, let's go, come on, time is of the essence. And then he gets the message, your daughter is dead. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. One of my favorite phrases in all of scripture, but Jesus. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Jesus has just called this woman daughter. And I, I, I can't help but imagine that there's a connection going on there, that Mark is wanting us to understand and, and notice that Jesus has love for individuals, all of them. And this woman who was helpless and hopeless and, and despairing, comes up and he heals her. And he puts a focus and an attention on her that she probably has not had in 12 years because she was ceremonially unclean. This is not okay. No one is supposed to touch her, to be near her, to interact with her like this. And Jesus does. And in the midst of that, Jairus' daughter dies. Well, he gets word that his daughter has died. And his response to Jairus then is, don't be afraid. Don't, don't live in fear. Only believe. Trust me. Trust me. Now, finally, we have that Fezzik moment. That everybody move moment. Because what happens next? Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him, except for three. 
I, we don't know how. We're not told specifically. But somehow, he gets the crowd dispersed. Jesus had that level of authority and power. And he, he just somehow tells them, you guys aren't coming with us anymore. And gets them out of the way. And he takes three of his disciples. We often refer to them as the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. These three, they, they come up a lot. Why did he pick those three? We don't know. It's not told. But those are the three that he chose to go with him. They go to the house. They arrive. He didn't allow anyone else to follow. They get there. It seems like, and, and in classic Mark style, things progress very, very quickly. We've had this slowdown, this pause, this thing that has held us up as he tells a different story. And now, boom, we're there and everything's moving forward. It's almost as if Jesus was delaying a little bit. So that not only would she be at death's door, but she would actually be dead. He arrives. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and they beheld a commotion. The people loudly weeping and wailing. They're, they're in mourning. Now, there's some discussion and debate. Were, were these like paid actors who come in and, and do the mourning? That was a thing that happened at that time. Culturally, there were times at which they would hire people to come and mourn. They were professional mourners. Kind of strange in our society, I realize, but that was a thing. Is, it, is that what's going on? Or maybe, and th this is kind of more my thought on, along these lines, death is a thing that happens. We know that death happens. But when it's someone who's old and advanced in years, they've lived their life, we mourn, but we understand that. But when it's a child, when it's a little one, I mean, that, that hits a lot differently than someone who's old and, and at the end of their life. This is someone who's, who's barely at the beginning of life, 12 years old. She's not even a teenager yet. And she's died? So one way or another, there's, there's this great commotion. And Jesus arrives and enters and says to them, why make a commotion and weep? Now, that just like the disciples who responded, um, there's this huge crowd around. I, I think that the people there kind of respond, um, there's, a, there's a dead girl? Of course there's reason to weep. This makes sense. This is fitting. Well, Jesus says, the child has not died, but is asleep. Now, that really ought to stand up in our, in our minds and understand. Can, can you imagine that? He hasn't even seen this girl yet. They're the ones who were there. They saw it. They made sure she was dead because they're not going to send somebody to tell dad, hey, forget it, leave it, we're done because the child's dead unless they know. They knew for sure. She's not sleeping. She didn't pass out. She's gone. She is dead. And yet he makes this claim. So their response then is they began laughing at him. They ridiculed him. Why, why would you say something like that? Of course she's dead. We know it. But he puts them all out, and he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and they enter the room where the child was. And so what does Jesus do? He walks in. He arrives, just like Jairus had asked. He came to the house, and he reaches out, and he takes her hand, he came and he touched her, just like Jairus had asked. Now, we know that Jesus could have just spoken a word and healed her from a distance. In fact, we're going to see episodes of that happen in other places. And yet, in this, Jairus had come with a request, and Jesus fulfilled that 
exact request. He came to the house, he touched the girl, and he speaks to her and says, get up. He commands her to get up, and immediately she does. Not only does she rise, but she also walks. And in a moment, we'll see that she eats. Now, if they knew for sure that she was dead, they were confident enough to send word to the father that she is dead. Mark is making sure that we understand, and Jesus was making sure that they understand, whatever they might have thought that she was dead, she's now alive. She's breathing again. Not only is she breathing, she stood up. She's walking around, and she's able to eat. Now, are there any questions as to whether or not she's alive or not? No, there shouldn't be. They make it abundantly clear that there can be no doubt she is alive. Who has the ability over death? Jesus. <laughs> Something like that. Only Jesus has that level of authority and power. Only Jesus has the ability. He then gives strict orders that they are not to spread the word. Now, this should kind of strike us as odd. Verse 43, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And then he said that something should be given her to eat. In the last episode with the, the legion, that man was told, go and spread the word. Stay in your, in your home, in your community, and tell them all about what Jesus has done. And yet here, we go back to what we had seen multiple times in the Gospel of Mark. Of He says, don't tell. Don't spread it about. Don't let it be known. Which is kind of odd. And yet, even that shows us the authority of Christ because it is in his timing, in his way, that he wants the message to be spread. Here in the next section, well, yeah, coming up before long, he's going to send his disciples out and tell them to spread the word, to send the message, to let it be known. So that is coming up eventually. But right now, he wants things done his way, in his timing. And he has the authority to require that. So what? These two situations are both completely hopeless. One of them was a chronic disease for 12 years, and yet Jesus was able to heal it. The other was death. And yet these show the ultimate power and authority of Christ, that he can defeat even death and raise someone from the dead. As I was reading through and pondering on this, Romans chapter 8 came to my mind. Verses 38 and 39 say, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In these four events, we have seen Jesus show his power over life and death and angels and principalities and and height and depth and created things and all of that. Jesus has just proven who he is. Two different people in two vastly different situations. And yet for them, the answer was the same. To come to Jesus, to bow before him, to trust his authority and have faith in him. So what? I always like to end with a so what these two individuals had only one response we only have one response 
just like they did, to come before Jesus, to bow, recognizing his authority, and to put our faith in him. That's what we're called to do. That's what we must do. That was their only possible answer. That is our only possible answer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this example in which you care for people, people who are vastly different socially and economically and culturally, and yet you love all of them. And you took time to interact with and deal with each of them. Lord, they had but one option, to come before you and bow in worship and admiration, to prostrate themselves before you, to acknowledge that you are in charge and they were not, and to trust in you for the answer to their problems. These were major problems that there was no human response for. Lord, may we have that same humility, that same willingness to come before you, to humbly bow, recognizing that you are in charge, to trust you. Lord, we know that you can answer any prayer, any request, in whatever way you choose. So Lord, we submit to you, trusting to your love and goodness to do what is best. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.